Today's episode is brought to you by our Sharper Together patrons. Our patrons make it possible to continue bringing you these life-giving conversations with Christian leaders all across the globe. As Sharper Together patrons, you can receive exclusive content, early access to episodes, and much more. To find out more about becoming a Sharper Together patron, please visit www.sharperpodcast.com backslash donate. And he said, he said, God has called you. Your purpose in this life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. When your purpose, your highest purpose and value becomes growing a ministry, being an influencer, being successful, making money, fill in the blank, fame, notoriety, ministry success, whatever. When those things become your driving purpose, those things are, are empty when you get to the end of them. But if your purpose is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that is eternal in its weight and its value and its significance. Welcome to the Sharper Together podcast. This is a show built on the Proverbs 27, 17, that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It is our hope that listening to real life stories and Q&A from leaders of all walks of life, that you'll be encouraged, empowered, and equipped in your walk with Christ. Today's guest is Brody Holloway. Brody is the co-founder and executive director of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird's ministry has trained and ministered to more than 100,000 high school and college students through its programs, conferences, camps, and retreats. Brody is passionate about expository teaching and missions mobilization. He's spent more than 20 years preaching the Bible to students and leaders and equipping them to take the gospel to the nations. Brody serves as SWO's camp pastor and travels extensively teaching on relevant topics such as biblical manhood, parenting, marriage, and leadership. He's also a church planner and the teaching pastor at Red Oak Church in Andrews, North Carolina. I'm your host, Michael Lee. Let's jump into today's episode and stay sharper together. Brody, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hey man, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to be here. Absolutely. Uh, well, I always like to start off with a, a tough icebreaker, and so my one for you is: I know you're a big outdoors guy. So talk about uh, what being outdoors, hunting, and that sort of thing. What does that do for you spiritually? Oh man, I would say it's like uh, you need something that's gonna. I got a buddy that says refill your tank. You know, so ministry, being in ministry, being in leadership, and and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I. I'm in leadership in, in multiple ministries and, uh, and then I've got a large family. So it's the one place I can disconnect. I, I prefer going into the back country. So like being in the mountains where the phone doesn't work and, and there's just something about the, I think there's the connectivity to creation. And then the idea of dominion that the Lord gave us in, in Genesis one and two and three. And, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, man, it's, uh, and I'm not just a hunter. I love to mountain bike. I love, I love pretty much just being in the outdoors. I'm a big mountain biker, big hunter. I love to bow hunt. Almost killed a big coyote last night with my bow. So that was that was a close call. I got drawn on him and couldn't get him to stop. He didn't cooperate. But anyway, yeah, I love the outdoors. Just got back from Idaho, had a big trip to Idaho. That was cool. So um, yeah, I love it, man. Yeah, it's good to have that outlet for sure. What What's your favorite story about your life that you love to tell? Actually, there's two stories that if, if I'm talking to somebody and, and we've got time, I share the the way we started Snowbird Outfitters, the way we started the camp, those early years, my wife and I were young, idealistic, 
we lived in an old fishing shack that had belonged to her granddad. We lived in that for three years, uh, no running water, very primitive. We, we, we just started the ministry here with nothing but shovels and weed eaters and chainsaws and just worked, you know, and, and started with nothing and, and watched God grow and develop. So the story of Snowbird is awesome. I'm almost finished with our first book, which tells that story. Then, and then the other one would be probably the, uh, the adoption of my two youngest children. We did a, we did an internet, it was an international adoption. We, we do work in several other countries. And one of those countries is Uganda. And we adopted uh, my two youngest kids from Uganda. And it was an independent, we just flew over there. These kids had been picked up by the police. We flew over there. We hired a, a, a Ugandan attorney, worked to get into the courts, get guardianship. They basically almost uh, no identity. I mean, we had to get birth certificates and um, they were legitimate street kids and orphans. And so that's a crazy story. It took up about six months of our life to we, uh, the board of directors here at Snowbird Outfitters, uh, turned me loose to move over there and do that. And it, it took up the best part of 2014. So that, that story is a crazy adventure because we weren't working with the government or adoption agencies or anything like that. We hired a, we had a Ugandan attorney. We had a U.S. immigration attorney. We had, um, a legal team that, that had to help us with that. It was just a crazy, crazy time. So those are the two, probably the two big stories that I love to talk about. Yeah. Let's go into that a little bit. If you've got time, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your adoption story. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, I, I try to explain it to people. If you were going to adopt internationally from China, there is a, there's like a partnership between the U S and China. And so the, the skids are sort of greased already. There's, there's a lot of work. It's very involved. But it's a step-by-step process. As long as you roll your sleeves up and walk through it, uh, it's a several months process and then you're done. And for us, uh, we went to a country that doesn't really do adoptions. Like there's, there's no real formal. In fact, there have been a lot, of, a lot of stretches of time over the last few years where they will not allow kids to be adopted out of Uganda. Um, they don't want kids being adopted internationally. And there's no partnership with the U.S. And so we went in, we had some people on the ground there from our ministry. We're doing work in about six other countries. And so we have people on the ground there. This became available, not available, but th- there was this opportunity and this need. We had prayed about it. We were approved. We were keeping, my wife and I were keeping a, a fresh and current home study, which is a home study is required to do an adoption, whether that's domestic or international. And so we were keeping we were keeping the ink fresh on a home study. Every 18 months, you had to renew it. We were keeping a fresh home study so that when we felt like the opportunity was going to come up and we were working with social services to try to uh, adopt a couple of kids in North Carolina and it had just fallen through and this opportunity came up. So we, we literally got on an airplane, took a leave of absence, flew to Uganda, landed on the ground. The next day met with an attorney that I contacted from here to there, sat down with this attorney, met with this attorney, uh, started the process. She got us a court date. So we take these two kids that were in the, basically would be like the equivalent of the custody of the state, but it's nowhere near as, as healthy of a situation there as it is here, as far as basically these kids were, they'll be, they'll be tossed into like a children's home or a, a baby house and, and, you're talking about third world conditions. So like uh, we went, we went to meet our two kids 
and the the house they were in was dirt floor, no running water, 30 kids in his house, about a thousand square feet in the middle of a slum. So we meet him and, uh, and go to court and this long process in a Ugandan court takes about two weeks and, and they issue us guardianship of these kids. And then, then from there, the process was to get an appointment at the U.S. Embassy and get approval for them to travel to the U.S. on an immigration visa, basically on a green card. But there was about three months of work we had to do to get them uh, birth certificates, Ugandan birth certificates. Uh, essentially, a lot of third world countries, particularly in Africa, um, you still have the outlying regions are more like sort of you've got indigenous people groups there's not as much of a cohesive national identity so like in america you go to washington state or south florida you can't get farther apart and you'll see the same restaurants and grocery stores i mean there's a cohesion to our now there there are regional businesses but people are going to speak the same language even if they're native american they're going to speak the same language well my kids come from a a small people group in a district or a region of Uganda on the Kenyan border where they didn't even speak the national dialect. And so you got multiple languages and so it was a complex situation. So once we had that two week process of getting guardianship, then we had to get birth certificates, passports, medical clearances. Um, I had to fly back to DC and hire an immigration attorney because we ran into some hiccups. There's such a fear of kids being trafficked. Rightly so, um, that there's there's so many hoops you got to jump through, and because it's an independent adoption, there's just a lot of hurdles. And so we, uh, I, I came back to the states, got an immigration attorney, met with an immigration attorney up near D.C., Northern Virginia, and then uh, our case ended up. So in East Africa, there are I think there are five countries in East Africa that that share a main um, immigration office, and that immigration office is in Nairobi, Kenya. So my kids are from Uganda, which is just to the west of Kenya. Um, and then there is an embassy in Uganda, but they don't have final authority when it comes to immigration issues. The embassy in Nairobi, Kenya does. So that ends up being a two-country ordeal that we're working with. We were also in and out of Rwanda at one point. So you got like Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya, uh, I think Tanzania, that all work out of one embassy. So had to had to get an immigration attorney that then worked with uh, the embassy in Nairobi, um, long story, really long story short, five month story short, we got our kids to America, uh, on green cards. And then we got here, we had to hire an American adoption attorney and start the process of adopting these kids in America. So basically you're adopting two legal immigrants who are here on a green card. And then we start the adoption process when that was all finished. They had North Carolina birth certificates. We changed their names to, you know, to our names. Um, interesting story. I think my my son, uh, that the youngest of those two, is a son who is eight years old now. He was about two at the time, and his basically the the uh, the name given in that culture in that society that that was assigned to him meant means illegitimate or liter- literally. Uh, I hate to use this word, but the word means bastard. So his surname or his last name was Kalulu. Kalulu in the Busogan or Lusogan tongue means bastard. And so when a child is born illegitimately and that, that's the surname he's given. So, so the name change process was very symbolic for us. It was very powerful. So that whole thing took 
took all of 2014 and into 2015. It's just a crazy story um, that literally took us around the world. I have three biological children who are older. And at the time they were like from the ages of uh, like eight to 14 and uh, or nine to 14. And they, we just moved over there. They moved with us. You know, we, we just went indefinitely and, and stayed boots on the ground until we got the adoption done. Wow, what an that's an incredible parallel biblically, and so yeah. I, I think it's a great follow up question: is what what has adoption taught you about God? You know, it's it's interesting uh, that you that I, it's cool that you make that connection because we've what I've learned is I always knew the scripture taught that we are adopted. You know that that's a, a visual that's given to us in scripture, and when you study Roman adoption. At the time, like, for instance, when Paul writes about our adoption in Romans 8 or in Ephesians 1, you're in, you're in the Roman Empire where adoption was super common. And it, it was also very legal, it was legally binding, and there were a lot of different applications for adoption. Um, oftentimes it had to do with an inheritance. And so a man might adopt, uh, an estate owner might adopt a son because a firstborn son was kind of a status thing. And so the scripture says we've been given the status of, of sons, you know, and so even the fact that it doesn't say sons and daughters was a cultural colloquialism or not even, not even that it was a cultural context that you got to read that through. So it's not that the daughters of God have a different status. It's that Paul is speaking to Christians in Rome and he says, you've been adopted as sons. So they had a context for that. You've, in other words, you've been given full status in the kingdom of God. Peter, I think, says it this way. You're, you are citizens in a kingdom um, where you used to be aliens. You know, we, we were without citizenship. Now we've been given citizenship. So it's just an, adoption is another really strong visual that Scripture gives us. In Ephesians 1, you know, there's this, all these identifying characteristics for the believer and when we're adopted, we're given a place at the table. You know, it's like literally, you know, my kids, uh, my, my two youngest kids who are adopted, they have their own bed, their own seat at the table. Like there's not like a different status in the family. You know, it's um, it's it's tr- full inclusion into the family with the name of the father. And that's such a biblical picture of the, the new name we're given in Christ. And Jesus as the firstborn among many brethren. It's just a powerful it has brought to light to me things that I knew theologically and academically, but that now has a different experiential lens to look through. Yeah, I love that. And you have your own podcast called No Sanity Required, and obviously we'll link uh, that uh, on our show notes here. And I'm actually going to link two episodes because we're kind of talking about it. Uh, and in one of those episodes, it was a pro-life one. This was a recent, like last week, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just talked about what it means to be a pro-life Christian and you didn't hold any punches back. And so I'd love for you to talk about uh, what it means to be a pro-life Christian and, and where you see Christians failing today in that, even though they stand up and say, I'm pro-life. Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question because I'm very passionate about this. And that podcast was born out, that episode was born out of, I was seeing, so this is funny. I, if your listeners will get a kick out of this, but uh, I don't have a computer. So Michael was, Michael was working with me this morning because we're trying to do this remote. Um, I don't have a computer, which is, I, I'm literally like a caveman. And so so I'm not on social media really, but but the ministry I lead, Snowbird Outfitters, we have a strong social media footprint. And so uh, I have three three days a week I go into our media team's office and just get updates on social media traffic. 
And what I was seeing was during this election cycle, people were saying, you know, they were they were they were saying who the candidate was that they were for. And and then they were saying, because I'm pro-life, I'm for this candidate. And I don't and I don't want to be in any way judgmental or condescending. But I was seeing these comments and then I'm looking at the data. And let me give you here's a stat for my county where I live. I don't anybody can look up their own stats and their own data. In the county that I live in, there are 300 registered, recognized evangelical churches. Now, we're a large land area county, but we're one of the smaller counties in the state when it comes to population. We're a rural county, a lot like the county you live in. It's a rural mountain county. 300 churches in a county with less than 30,000 year-round residents. There's 300 churches. And so in that county, when last time I checked, there were 67 children in foster care. So 300 plus churches, 67 children in foster care. We work very closely with the Department of Social Services in our county. And what I know to be true is there is a shortage of foster families. So we have kids being sent to places outside of this county to children's, uh, one of the ones that's real popular is the Baptist Boys and Girls Homes of North Carolina. I think they have like six locations. That's one. There's a, there's several homes like that that kids are getting sent to, or they're getting sent outside of the county because there are foster families available in other counties, but not here. And so I, I just feel this burden that, that like Jesus, if you go back into the Old Testament and you look at how the Lord spoke to Israel, and you look at how Jesus addressed the church in the New Testament, you see at the in the heart of God, you see a compassion and a care for the most vulnerable among us. And and we will, people will wave the pro-life flag and say, babies in the womb are the most vulnerable among us. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I am pro-life, anti the killing of babies. I believe it is, I believe it is one of the most horrific things that as a society we could we could approve of and endorse and pay for. I think I think it needs to be addressed with the caveat that those who have gone through that, that the grace of God is there for their forgiveness and healing. So it's not a condemnatory thing. It's like it's sin, but God has grace to deal with that. But we need to address abortion. But at the same time, people will get so caught up in the argument from a political standpoint and then Jesus is saying, take care of the most vulnerable in your society. So next to infants in the womb, the most vulnerable in our society are single teenage mamas, um, kids that are in foster care. Because, for instance, I remember having three kids in our home for a, a, a long period of time because mom and dad were living in a, in a little Toyota Tercel that was ratted out, beat up, no tags on it, down by the Valley River which that sounds like a line from a movie or something, you know, down by the Valley river in a, on the side of a cornfield in a little area that nobody knew they were down there. They're living there. And we work real closely with the school system here in our County. We have an after school gospel centered tutoring program that my wife runs. And we have a real strong relationship with the schools and a lot of favor in the schools. And so they called us and said, Hey, we can't find these three kids. Social services can't find these three kids. They haven't been at school for several days. And so we go to them. We knew where they were staying. Mom and dad end up arrested on drug charges. The kids end up in our home. We keep them in our house for three or four weeks, I think, because mom signed them over to us. And these kids are so vulnerable. And as we're ministering to this family, I realized, man, if the church would just embrace the most vulnerable in their society, we could we could love people like this really well. Because in, in a month that we had those three boys last year, 
their grades went up. They went to school clean. They went to school fed. They went to school uh, not not looking destitute. There was there was a quality of life that was given to them where they were just given a bed to sleep in and, and their home was opened up to them. Well, that started a conversation in our house that what if each church, just each church, not each family, what if each church said, let's let's equip a few of our families to help with this situation. So let's say that a church of 100 people, that's a small church, church of 100 people, that one family in that church gets certified to foster. Three families in that church get certified to do respite, which respite is you you can, in an emergency situation, you can step in and, and you can house a child that's in the um, custody of the state, but you're not doing long-term foster care. Or you could do what my wife and I do, which is we're, we're licensed by the state to keep foster kids in our home overnight. So like um, there are several foster families in our church. Um, we're not certified to foster, but what we do is when they need a break, their kids can come stay with us for the night. So they're staying with us overnight and it gives that family relief. If multiple families in the church do that, then it can be a community thing where each church. So, so back to my County, 300 churches, 67 kids in foster care. (laughs) Like that shouldn't, it should not be that the state is having to deal with this problem. The church should be dealing with this problem. Jesus addressed the most vulnerable among us. And that was the orphan, the widow and the alien and, and poor people. And so what we've done is we've grown, we've gotten to the point where we're allowing the state to deal with all of that. And then we're complaining about the way the state's doing it. Like I, I've got good Christian friends who I know love the Lord and they wave their flag and they've got their political candidate sticker on their card. They're, they're all about, you know, God and country and the second amendment and this candidate and that candidate, whatever. What are you doing for the orphan among you? You know, and they're doing nothing. Well, I, I don't think I could foster. And, and a lot of times it's, I don't think I could foster because I'd get attached to the kid and then they leave and then that'd be too hard. Or that doesn't, when the bottom line for most people is it doesn't fit into the narrative of their life to be inconvenienced with bringing, because it's hard. Those three little boys in my house last year or any number of teenage girls that have lived with us through the years, my wife and I, it's hard to get that involved in people's lives, but it's at the heart of God to do so. And we've been given the responsibility of doing it. And so what that podcast that I, that I did that you're going to link, the, the heart behind it was don't just, don't just wave the banner of, of political causes or of social causes. Do something about it. And that may not be fostering. It may be there's a family in our church, and I think I mentioned them in that podcast, that episode. There's a family in our church that in the last three or four years they have taken four single mothers into their home. And, and those single moms have stayed with them anywhere from a month to six months, six months. My wife runs a ministry in the local jail that we have a federal holding facility here in Cherokee County, North Carolina. My wife has a ministry in that jail where she goes in. She can't right now because of COVID, but she goes in, does a week, does a Bible study on Saturdays, worship service. Um, it's just typical jail ministry. And those gals get out of jail. They got nowhere to go. Most of them, their kids are in foster care. Um, And so they want to reunite with their kids, but they don't have, they come out of jail and they end up right back in the same crack house, meth house, whatever that they, that they were in before they went into jail. And so they never have a chance to really reconnect with their kids. And so this one family in our church has said, we want to provide a platform for that. So they've got these single moms with their kid living in their home. 
until they can get them on their feet, get them a job, get them a vehicle. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of what God has called us to do and be as Christians. And so, yeah, that, that, I don't know if that totally answers the question and it's a little bit of a rant and I'm passionate about it for sure. But I think if you look at the number of of kids in foster care in America and the number of evangelical churches, we should be able to take care of this problem. One other thing that people can do is, is be a guardian ad litem, which is just being a, uh, it's a class you go through and then you're an advocate in the courts for a kid um, because they need advocacy. There's so many ways people can be involved. Yeah, no, that completely answers the question. I just think about, could you imagine the witness that our lives would have if, if every church stepped up in this area, like you're talking about? You know, we're called to be salt and light. And what does salt do? It makes things better. And so if, if what an incredible witness, if the state, like they had no job anymore because the church stepped up and started taking care of these kids and taking care of these pregnant women. And I'm just, I, I can't imagine the impact mm-hmm. that would have on people. Yeah, hundred percent. And when you talk to those social workers and caseworkers and the people at Department of Social Services, they all look like they're, they look like the end of finals week of graduate school. I mean, their hair is disheveled. You know, they just look, got this deer in the headlights. They are overworked, stressed. I mean, they, they, they are, they are laboring tirelessly for these kids and man, yeah, the church would just help them. Yeah, that's a a hard truth. And so I'm right there with you about that. Let's talk about a season in your life that was really difficult. And and what did God do in that season? I think you and I talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I think you'd mentioned maybe 2017. Did you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was actually 07. That's, that year, you know, I think 2020 is going to be a year that a lot of people have, like when you hear, you know, 20 years from now, when you hear uh, 2020, it's going to almost stir up like, oh, that was a rough year, you know? And 2007 is that for me. So what happened in 2007 was, Snowbird Outfitters was about 10 years old. We started in 97, so we're 10 years old. The ministry had grown, and early that year, uh, my wife and I lost a child, and then just within a few weeks of that, my dad died, and and there's a story behind my relationship with my dad that was, he was, uh, when I was a smaller child and growing up, he was in ministry. He was a pastor in Haywood County. He fell away from the Lord, and and fell into the world and, and left my mom. And it was, it was kind of a bad situation. And then, um, we had just experienced some reconciliation. My third child had been born about a year and a half prior and we had experienced some reconciliation and we're starting to put the relationship together and he died. That was pretty intense. And then I lost the guy who was a year older than me and had been sort of like my mentor in ministry. This guy, his name was Rob Hester. He was a student pastor um, in the eastern part of North Carolina, and we got to be friends. He brought the first group that ever came to Snowbird Outfitters. He brought them here. We we developed a strong relationship. He died. He was thirty six and just died suddenly. It was like completely unexpected. And uh, and that was on June second of that year. So in about a three or four month window, all this stuff happened. Well, we were in the middle of our summer camp, and 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 the camp that I run, Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters. I don't say I run it. That we started, and that that I'm I'm in leadership there, and I have an incredible team that. Uh, of about 40 people that run the ministry and, and uh, awesome ministry. And at that time we were bringing in about uh, 80, 70 to 80 summer staff. And so now we bring in about 150 summer staff, like summer interns, mostly college kids. At that time we were bringing in about 70 uh, at, and we do a two week training, staff training. And, uh, and then 
we do week-long summer camps with church youth groups. And so uh, the the middle of that summer, uh, four of those kids were killed in a car wreck. They were our staff, not not campers, but our staff. So our camp ends each Saturday and then starts back up on Monday. So a group comes in, like a, a youth pastor might bring his students. They get there Monday. They stay till Saturday. Well, a big number of our students, I'm, I'm sorry, our staff, went to Atlanta to a Braves game, just kind of an outing, a Saturday evening outing. I think about 50 of them went down there. And uh, when they were driving back, uh, one of the one of the cars had six kids in it um, wrecked on uh, I-575 just north of Atlanta. And it was, a, it was a mechanical malfunction, and the car went into a roll, and I think it flipped, rolled 13 times. And so four kids died. Two were in intensive care for about a month. And it was so disorienting that I ended up having to notify all of the parents because uh, they flew kids to three different hospitals and helicopters and it was just real chaotic and we weren't sure who had been in the wreck. It was an all night deal where the wreck happened at about 11 and about three in the morning, we had identified the, the four that had died and the two that were hanging on. And so, you know, making those calls at, at three in the morning to mamas and, di- and daddies in different parts of the country and was and I'm not even sure it's the right way that should have been done. There should have been local ministry leaders in their hometowns and local law enforcement, but it was just so chaotic. We got to get a hold of their parents. Um, so it was it was it was an incredibly difficult season to to stand over the caskets of, of four 20 year olds that you've discipled and trained and prepared for ministry, and and some of them had grown up coming through our ministry. And uh, yes, yeah, that was a very difficult season. And then to almost like insult to injury right after that, right after that summer, we survived that summer. We got through the Lord did wonderful things right after that summer. We were such a young ministry. Like I said, we were 10 years old and we had been just basically uh, surviving year to year financially. And uh, the state came in and imposed um, some pretty big wastewater regulations on us. And so we took a big financial hit. We had to spend what little money we had. I'd spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to get our wastewater system in place, which just means sewage, you know, sewer in-house, which is a huge part of infrastructure. And it and it crippled us financially. And so we were facing that that December, we were gonna have to close the doors and called a meeting with our our team and said, look, we gotta pray, because at that point I think we had been about a month or two without a paycheck. Everybody was just living by faith and trusting the Lord. And but we're we got we're at a crossroads and and uh, so we met, we prayed, we were, uh, were blown away the next day after we met and prayed. We got a call from a, from a foundation in Atlanta that an anonymous $150,000 donation had been given to our ministry. And we were about $140,000 behind after all that we had been through that year. And, and so the, it, was, it was neat. I like to tell that part of the story because at the end of that crazy year, the, it was like the Lord gave me a little attaboy and said, hey, man, I got you. We're, we're not going anywhere. You might you might be month to month at times, and and you're going to live by faith. But I'm going to grow this ministry, and, and we're here to stay. And uh, so that was pretty neat experience uh, in terms of understanding the sovereignty of God. So what 2007 taught me is it taught me about the sovereignty of God. And uh, you know, think about that scene where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there, and everyone's bowing down to this really gaudy, awkward, gold plated idol, and those dudes are just kind of standing there looking around like, ah, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to bow down to this. And 
the, the consequences of their actions and then the way the Lord works through all of that, even in the king's own, what some commentators and theologians believe was a conversion, to look at that situation and go, God doesn't keep us from trial. He brings us through trial and he perfects our faith in that and he uses us. There's a word in the in, the, in Romans 8 that's translated tribulation when Paul says, what will separate us from the love of God? Well, tribulation, the Greek word is thalipsis. And it's the word that's used for squeezing grapes to create the juice that will then be fermented to make wine. In other words, it's a difficult squeezing process that brings about something very rich and valuable. And that's a, that's a really cool picture of how God works in the life of a believer in, in difficult times. Yeah, that really speaks to the culture of the American church. One thing that I see a lot uh, right now in American church is this prosperity theology. But the truth is, like, we're going to have trouble in this world. And uh, it's I prefer the mountaintops, as I'm sure you do as well. But mm-hmm. where do you learn the most about God? It's in those valley seasons and moments. And so... I love that you shared that story. And gosh, I can't imagine, like, was it seven total people that year? It was, you lost a child, your father passed away, a friend, and four staff members? Yep, that's right. Um, Yep. And there was actually another friend, a a close family friend. My wife and I are friends with this couple that he's a pastor, and they brought students to camp. And we had been in their home. We were on the road doing a ministry event at a public high school, like an assembly event in, in Florida that week. And stayed in their home and came back to North Carolina here and she died in an accident that, so really it was eight. Yeah, it was crazy. Absolutely just crazy to think about to, to this day. If my phone, when I go to bed at night, I turn my phone off. We're probably like a lot of people, we don't have a landline. So I put my phone in airplane mode or I turn it off. I don't want it to ring. If, if my phone rings in the middle of the night, I've had enough of those ministry wake up calls. It's almost like you go into some sort of PTSD yeah. You know, you know, like, oh man, why am I getting a call? Yeah. Where are my kids? Are all my kids here? You know, I've got kids that are now out of the house and married. And so what's going on? I got, a, I got a daughter who's, she and her mm-hmm. husband are missionaries in Northern Uganda. And she's just always like, oh gosh, the phone's ringing. What, mm-hmm. What's going on? You know? Yeah. Earlier in this story, you mentioned 2020 and the impact that that's had on a, pretty much everyone. And, and that's a question I had for you. Talk about 2020 and its impact on you spiritually. It's been crazy for sure. And for me, to to be totally honest, I think it's been one of the best years of my life because I think we have the tendency to grow comfortable and, um, and, and that's not been an option this year. Um, at least for me, it hasn't, um, because of the, the things that we have faced, um, both, you know, just as a society and the world over, like the things that we're up against. Um, so for an example would be, Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters is primarily a conference center. We're a gospel-centered. We do everything from um, student camps to men's and women's conferences, marriage conferences. We've got a veterans event coming up. Um, and so we have about oh, we have about 12, 12 or 13,000 people that come here annually for our different conferences and camps and with a plan to grow to 20,000 in the next five years. And so it's a growing dynamic ministry. Well, when the, um, like my personal experience is that when the lockdown started it, it, real early on, it was obvious that this is not going to be a summer where we're able to run because 12,000 people will come through this year and half of them will be in the summer. So the summer is critical to our survival. We're running stuff all year, like at, with the exception of, of right now through Christmas, 
the rest of the year, we have people here constantly, um, weekend events and things like that. And so the summer is is huge for the survival of the ministry. And so when it looked like, man, how are we going to do this? It took a lot of innovation. It took a lot of vision. Um, it took creativity. I met with county commissioners. We met with um, Department of Health and Human Services. We met with people in Raleigh. We met with state senators, state representatives. We met with um, with the sheriff. Like, hey, what do we got to do to not be breaking actual statutes? You know, how can we operate and function? And so we were being creative to say, how do we do this and and follow guidelines? You know, that, like social distancing or whatever. And God was so gracious because in our proactivity, He is sovereign. And even though we were working hard and being proactive, it ultimately was His sovereignty that made a way for us to be able to run camp. And so, man, I'm telling you, we ran, we ran, we weren't able to run our first three weeks. And after that, we set records for attendance. People would, people were fighting to get here. They wanted their kids here because at that point, by the time we got into July, people had been on lockdown for three months. Student ministries weren't meeting. People were doing church by Facebook live or zoom or whatever. And we saw God move at Snowbird Outfitters like we've never seen him move. It was crazy. I mean, people were coming here and God was doing great, great and awesome things. And we were super creative in the way we were able to pull it off. We did not, once we got past those three weeks where we were closed, we ran at full capacity plus extra capacity. We made provision to grow and we rented a facility about three miles from our place because we couldn't house people and effectively distance them. So our main auditorium seats 600 people. We put a long-term lease on an abandoned old concert venue. It was like an old honky-tonk. Like a, I think they called it a music hall, Bear Ridge Music Hall. We went over and, and, uh, and met with the owner of that place and said, if, we, if you put the money up for materials and our, our maintenance and construction team renovates this building, could we lease it for the next couple of years because it seats 2,000 people? So we could put seven, six, 700 people in there. It's a 2,000-seat auditorium. We can distance people. And uh, – and we're able to make that happen. And we've got that thing through next year. And we're probably going to go ahead and buy the thing. We're working out a deal to buy the thing. So just just one of the things that 2020 has done for me, come back to answer your question. I know my answers are long-winded, but the, come back. One is it's stretched and grown my own faith because you realize you work as hard as you want to, but if God doesn't move and orchestrate things, then, then your work is in vain. And that's a biblical principle. Jesus talks about that. You, like you labor in vain if God doesn't build the house, you know? And so, but at the same time, we got to work, live by faith, take action. Let's move forward. I remember calling our, our 40 plus employees, about 52 people between employees and interns, calling them together when the lockdown was going to go in place on that Friday that we had had to be meetings of 10 or less and say, look, we're going to do what we have to do to, to stay open and run. But no matter what you hear, just know we're going to innovate. We're going to work. We're going to make this happen. Shutting down is not an option because right now the world is darkening like we've not seen it darken in our time. And we want to be light. We want to be a city on a hill. We want to be a place that people can can experience God in a fresh way. And in the darkest season of a lot of our lives as a society, we need to be ready to, to do whatever it takes to, to roll and work and operate. And so acting and and working but trusting the sovereignty of God and his favor I, I taught I learned so God taught me so much I learned so much this year about working hard trusting the sovereignty of God and knowing that if God doesn't come through it's not going to happen but if he does come through nothing's going to stop it from happening and also I would say personally I learned almost I guess a new and refreshed level 
the need for daily dependence on God, like time in the, in the word, time talking to Jesus, man, every day, like fixing my eyes on Jesus and thinking about him as the, the one that's going to perfect my faith, you know, like just focused on Jesus every day. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, what is something that God is teaching you right now in this moment when you're getting alone, spending time with him each and every day? What's he speaking to you? Well, I mean, it all kind of goes in. I'm, I am studying right now in personal study. I, I, I'm not teaching or preaching on this right now, but I'm studying through the book of Philippians right now. And, and basically, it's reinforcing these same principles, which is this morning I was in, in Philippians 2 where Paul says, do, do everything without grumbling or murmuring. Um, and in, in chapter one, which I was in last week, he's, he talks about how God is using his imprisonment to bring about great fruit um, in ministry. So, hey, whatever God chooses to use, let's roll with it. And if that means I got to be in prison, I'm cool with that because it's a witness that God's using. So, yeah, it, it, it definitely where I'm at personally in my study of Philippians, and it, it totally lines up with that 100%. And I'm studying through Genesis right now. Personally, I'm not teaching through it. I'm just, I, I, try, I like to study one Old Testament book, one New Testament book in my personal devotions. And so right now I'm in Genesis and I'm just starting the story of Joseph and his brothers. I read the, this morning I read the, um, where Joseph had the dreams. You know, he shows up at breakfast, at the breakfast table and says, hey guys, I had a cool dream. Y'all were all worshiping me. It was pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, uh, we're going to kill you. So, um, but that's a story of sovereignty. And it's like everything God's doing right now is is just pointing to this idea of sovereignty. My, I mentioned I have a daughter and a son-in-law who are on the mission field, but they're home right now because of COVID. They had to leave and, and walking through that with them and, and, and getting them back over there. They're, they're headed back in January, it looks like, to northern Uganda. And just seeing God work and orchestrate things, it's been, it's been very personal for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Brody. What is something that you wish you would have known about your relationship with God, your walk with God, when you first came to faith in the Lord? Probably, and this might be because this is just where I'm at. Um, well, I'm a twofold answer. One, what we just were talking about, that embracing the sovereignty of God doesn't negate the responsibility of man. So I believe that God is sovereign. I believe he orchestrates everything, everything from elections to pandemics to economies to like somehow God is moving and working, though he's not micromanaging all things maybe. You know, like I don't know exactly how you reconcile that, but I know that that scripture is very clear that God is sovereign over the affairs of humanity. Um, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to share Christ, to worship God, to be obedient, to love his word. One thing that I've learned and that I wish I would have known early on that I share with young guys all the time who are, who are coming into ministry or, or maybe, maybe going to plant a church or maybe getting uh, filling a call to missions or ministry or pastoral ministry and say, listen, man, I wish I'd have known early on that you need to live your life, whether it's counseling or building a ministry or day-to-day ministry work in life, or if you're working in the secular world, you're not in ministry, you're working in a manufacturing job, you're a police officer, you're a nurse, you're a school teacher, you should live your life in this tension that creates a mild state of panic, where I'm living in such a way that if God doesn't come through, things could be disastrous. People live too comfortably. So I think I would tell my young ministry self, it's okay to be uncomfortable. And I always was. God God kept us because we were 25 when we started Snowbird. Like I was really young. I was really young to start a ministry. And I was only a five-year-old Christian at that point. I, you know, I thought, man, what is, like, like I would freak out over things and learning to embrace the freak out and just live in it. You know, it's kind of like, it's okay to be in a state of 
of living by faith with a mild state of panic. I mean, I, I even apply that principle when I'm teaching and preaching, like walking out on stage. I remember reading that Spurgeon used to, as he's walking out onto the stage at London Tabernacle, he would he would say, okay, Holy Spirit, please take over right now. I can't do this if you don't, you know? And so living and working and preaching and laboring and making a living in a mild state of panic, where I'm living my life in a way that I'm living by faith, but I'm acting as if, I trust and believe in the sovereignty of God, and I'm living in a way where God's got to come through. I love that encouragement because you're right. There's too many of us as Christians who are living in that spirit of fear, and and the Bible says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but one of love, power, and a sound mind. And so Mm -hmm. embracing that panic is stepping out of that comfortability uh, and doing things that we would be fearful of if God didn't show up and God didn't move. And so I love that encouragement for us today. Uh, Now, this next question is kind of a fun one. If you were in my shoes, if you're sitting down and you're interviewing Brody Holloway, what is a question that you would ask Brody? What is is the meaning of life? (laughs) Because I think that's the question that every human that ever breathes a coherent breath on planet Earth in history has to answer. What's the meaning of life? And and, uh, and so anytime I'm able to get into a conversation with somebody, that's where I want to take the conversation. I was on a flight. I'd, I'd spoken at a missions conference in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, when I fly, I fly in and out of Atlanta. Um, I'd flown to Fort Myers, and it was a long weekend of speaking and teaching. I've been in a couple of different events, a college conference, then a missions event. And I was at the Fort Myers airport. There was this long layover. And I get on the plane, and usually I'm looking for opportunities to share the gospel with somebody. That day, I was not so much looking for that opportunity because I was exhausted. I just wanted to get on the plane, put my earbuds in, and go to La La Land. Well, I sat down, and there's this guy beside me. He's a young 27-year-old Amazon executive, graduated from a really prestigious university, and he's a young professional. I mean, he's he's living what most 20-somethings want to live. and and this conversation strikes up. He, he finishes his degree, gets a job with Amazon at a high level, and he was he was unfulfilled. And it's, there's a cool end to that story because it turned into a gospel conversation. And he ended up coming to Snowbird a couple of weeks later to visit the ministry to, to visit us. And we had a we had a weekend event going on. And that dude, man, he prayed to receive Christ. So it's pretty cool. But um, I remember just getting off the plane thinking, I need to make sure that when I'm able to get in conversations with people, I ask them, what's what's your purpose? What's the meaning of life? Because for me, I mentioned earlier that there was a, a moment of reconciliation with my dad and having this conversation with my dad. And he says, hey, man, he says, I got I need to talk to you. And he comes by my house. He says, I want to I want to be a part of your life and I want to be a part of your kids lives. And my third kid had been born. And he says, I want to be a part of Laylee's life. That's my third child. And what does it take to do that? And so I said, we, we had this conversation, that conversation. I said, man, tell me how I don't end up going down the path you went down. What I meant by that was he had been a pastor, like I said earlier, who walked away from the Lord, left my family, got caught up in the world. And man, he just ended up struggling in life and, and died young, like died in his early fifties. And so, and this was just a, a, about a year before he died. And so I said, how, how do I not end up? I said, I'm not being disrespectful, but how do I not end up going down the path you ended, ended up going down? Like, what do I do to guard against that? And man, I'll never forget, this is monumental for me. 
as a young dad and young guy in ministry, he said, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, God has called you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And there's no higher calling than that. And he said, that's your purpose. And what he's describing there is what we call sanctification, according to scripture. That's the process of sanctification. God conforming us to the image of Jesus. And he said, he said, God has called you. Your purpose in this life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. When your purpose, your highest purpose and value becomes growing a ministry, being an influencer, being successful, making money, fill in the blank, fame, notoriety, ministry success, whatever. When those things become your driving purpose, those things are are empty when you get to the end of them. But if your purpose is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that is eternal in its weight and its value and its significance. In fact, that's what eternity is all about. And he said, so know that your purpose is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to become more like Christ. And if you pursue that, then every other purpose and meaning and endeavor and calling and work and relationship in your life will fit into that greater purpose and calling. But when you make any of those other things ultimate, then that's when things will become unsynchronized. And so sort of this idea of synchronization around being conformed to the image of Christ and everything else spins around that. Um, that was the conversation I had. So yeah, when if, if I could ask myself a question, I would give myself the opportunity to talk about that. What's your value? What's your purpose? Why, what's the meaning of life? It's to know God, to know Jesus, to be shaped and changed by the gospel, and then to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Everything else has to fall. That's why if you meet a guy who has faithfully worked in Sunday school at his church and worked in a manufacturing facility for 50 years, and he's now 75 years old and he loves God and he's faithful. What, the reason is because his purpose was in Christ. And then you meet someone who was a millionaire by 30, a multimillionaire by 35, but who seems to not be happy. Why is that? Well, because they haven't tapped into a deeper, more eternal purpose. And so that's that's what I would ask myself. Yeah, that's a great answer, Brody, and a great question. And I appreciate you answering that the way that you did. I am curious about your father, though, the way that, that his story ended. Did he ever end up reconciling his relationship with God? Yeah. So my dad, he there was reconciliation between my dad and God and my dad and me. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. In, in fact, I preached his funeral at his funeral. I said, I don't want to try to preach him into heaven, you know, but um, but I do believe that he was reconciled to God. And it was because we had some conversations after that conversation I just shared that next Christmas, he came and spent the night. He lived by himself. Uh, he had sort of isolated himself and strained relationships. And my siblings were all very forgiven of him. So he had a good relationship with all of his kids, as good as could be. And I, and I, even the sovereignty of God in all things that like my my mom remarried an awesome godly dude that's just a blue collar construction working guy with leather hands and hard work ethic who loves Jesus, reads at about an eighth grade level and reads the Bible through about every two years. It takes him about two years to get through it. He just loves Jesus. And he's, he's the granddad my kids know. So I see the sovereignty of God in that. But with my dad, he came to my house and spent Christmas Eve, Christmas night, and then got up that morning with my kids. And we're sitting there on the couch on Christmas Eve, we have several Christmas Eve traditions that we do with our kids. And, and I said, uh, I looked over at him and I said, man, we ought to do this. Y'all do this every Christmas. Cause we were just newly reconciled. He and I, 
and I, and and I was looking forward to growing the relationship and never had much of a relationship with him. Even when I was younger and he was in ministry, he was very much involved in ministry, but not I, I never was real close with him. And there's things he taught me that I'm forever indebted to. My dad, he taught work ethic and integrity and strength of character. Like there, there was a lot of things that, that I'm thankful for. He made me work hard from a young age. I was a college athlete. I'm kind of telling a story inside of a story, but I was a college athlete. I got a, I got a short weekend break my first semester at college. And I, and I was going to school six hours away, um, playing Division One sports, very demanding. I got to come home on Thanksgiving. I got to be home for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I come home. I get in late Wednesday night. We have Thanksgiving Day. And then my dad had lined up two days of labor through a temp agency on Friday and Saturday where I was just doing like, you know, $6 an hour labor. And it was hard work. I don't even remember what it was. And I remember thinking, I'm not going home on any more breaks. Um, but that was right before he and my mom split up. But I'm thankful that he made me do stuff like that. I remember when I was in about the fourth grade, he contracted me out to a lady in the trailer park we lived in to mow her yard with a push mower. And she had a big ditch in the front. She didn't want me to do the ditch because she's afraid I'd get hurt. My dad came home and saw that the ditch hadn't been mowed. And she'd give me $5 to do about three hours of mowing with this push mower. And I was 10 years old. And he said, you go out there and mow that ditch. You're not done with the job. So I appreciate, that's the kind of thing I appreciate, like work ethic. And so we were getting to this place where I was saying to my dad, you know, I'm thankful that you raised me to be a hard worker. I'm thankful that you raised me to be a person who, who didn't ask for anything and didn't expect a handout. And we were, and I was, I was starting to appreciate those things about my dad and starting to reconcile in my mind what God might be doing in his heart and talking to him about the things of the Lord. And he had, he had started going to Biltmore Baptist over in the main campus in Asheville. So um, he started going to Biltmore. I've got a Bible on my study that has notes he took in a sermon. It's probably the first sermon he had said under in years. Uh, and he had a PhD in theology, man. My dad was like, he had an MDiv and a PhD in theology from like back in the 70s. And then this was all happening in the in the 90s and early 2000s. And so, and, and of course, then his death in 07. So I had, uh, I'd had this long conversation with him on Christmas Eve and said, man, I, I'm excited about where the Lord's going to take our relationship. Let's plan on you doing this every Christmas. And this is crazy, man. He looked at me and, and said, I don't think I'll be here anymore Christmases. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I think the Lord has left me on planet earth long enough to reconcile some relationships, to repent, to admit the wrong I've done. And I've done that and I'm feeling the grace of God, but I don't know if I can live with the consequences of my sin and actions and the lives I ruined and the family damage I did. He said, I think there's a, there's a lot of things worse than living and dying. And he said, and that's living in a state of rebellion against God. And he said, I'd rather go to be with the Lord. And he said, I just think the Lord's going to take me. It's so bizarre. And six weeks later, I got a call um, that we got a call that he was at the hospital. And anyway, he died. And just bizarre, like suddenly died. So six weeks before his death, he had told me, I think, I think my days are numbered and God's going to take me. I don't, I don't read too much into it. I don't know why he was feeling that way, but yeah, to answer the question, there was reconciliation. We talked about God and grace and forgiveness and, um, and he loved Snowbird and the ministry God's doing here. So yeah, I'm thankful for that. Wow. What an incredible story, Brody. I appreciate you sharing that with us today. Uh, and it's great to hear that your dad reconciled with the Lord. My last question for you is, 
if you had an opportunity to say one final thing to the listener, just one big encouragement about people's faith in God and their walk with the Lord, what would that be? I would say your life is all about Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And, you know, Scripture says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and became flesh and dwelled among us in John 1, 1 and 14. And that's Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And if you live by faith and walk by faith and every single day drink deeply of His grace, worship Him in spirit and in truth, love, love His Word and submit to it and learn it and read it and study it and memorize it and surrender to it, then you'll experience fulfillment that nothing in this world can provide. So uh, in, in, in one sentence, I'd tell people, keep your eyes on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Brody, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Would you mind praying uh, for the listeners and praying the show out? I'd love to. Thanks, Michael. Lord, I pray that, that as we come to the end of our time together, that something that uh, has been said, talked about, reflected on, might encourage someone. Maybe it's somebody that's in a dark season of life and they're questioning the sovereignty of God. Maybe it's someone that so loves theology that they've grabbed hold of the sovereignty of God, but they're not living their lives as Jesus would have them to live in humility and, and, and grace towards others. Maybe it's somebody that's cold and stale in their faith. God, we all go through those seasons where we walk with you long enough. There are going to be seasons of dryness and seasons maybe even of doubt. I pray that you would ignite new flames, new fire in people's souls and hearts for who Jesus is. And uh, I thank you for this podcast. I thank you for the ministry that you're growing out of it. And I, and I thank you for what you're going to do in, in the lives of people that uh, continue to tune in and listen. And I thank you, Jesus, for giving us the grace that removes the penalty of our sin. You took our sin and you paid that penalty and you've given us life that is free from condemnation and and that is eternal, uh, we're going to have more than enough time to glorify you because there's going to be no end to it. And I pray that we would live our lives in light of that eternal kingdom and reality. And uh, we'll give you thanks and praise for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. so much for tuning into today's episode of the Sharper Together podcast. If you want to hear more incredible conversations just like this, please make sure to subscribe to the Sharper Together podcast on your favorite listening device. You'll receive each episode downloaded directly to you so you never miss a show. Would you take a moment and subscribe and review this podcast because the more subscriptions and reviews we receive means more and more people that will receive and hear about these life-giving conversations. You can find more information at www.sharperpodcast.com. We'll see you next time as we stay sharper together.